Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, documentary filmmaker Alan Berliner digs for the essence of memory. For nearly 30 years, Alan Berliner has been making uniquely personal documentary films that mine his life, the lives of people in his family and his ancestry, chipping away at seemingly ordinary stories to find a more precise, poetic, and layered truth. His films display a relentless curiosity about the people closest to him, territory that is fraught with pitfalls. Berliner's latest film is called First Cousin Once Removed, and in it, again, Berlin focuses on family. In this case, the subject is his cousin, Edwin Honig, who has Alzheimer's disease. What this means is that each time Edwin sees Alan, it's like they're meeting for the first time. The film is painful and it's beautiful, and as with his other works, it makes us repeatedly consider what we think of this man and what we think of memory. First Cousin Once Removed will be on HBO this Monday, September 23rd at 9 p.m. We were delighted to get Ellen Berliner in a studio to speak with Matthew Fishbane. Matthew is Tablet's arts and culture editor. They spoke about this film and about memory and about other things. Here's their conversation. Alan Berliner, welcome to Vox Tablet. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, maybe we can start by hearing a clip from early on in your latest film um, in which we meet Edwin Honig, um, and then we meet him again, and we meet him again, and we meet him again. In fact, we also meet you again and again and again. Hi. Hi. How are you? We're fine. Good to see you. Your cousin, Alan. Edwin? Hi. Hi. You remember me? You remember me? I do. Hi. Hi. My friend Ian. What's this? It's a camera. Okay. So at this point, most viewers don't know anything about Edwin Honig, though later on we learn a great deal. He was a poet, a translator, beloved, if intimidating professor and much more that we're going to get into. But right away, we get a sense of his graceful mind and its various states. Tell us about Edwin. Well, um, he was a big man. He had a big presence, kind of like a, like a big bear, you know, and uh, both in he's a sort of tall and his girth um, had also a big uh, mane of white hair, like his father before him. And that was a trademark of his, his, his uh, thick, very healthy-looking white hair. He also had a, a kind of a big nose, like a hawk nose in a way. And uh, as I was making the film, I became really enamored of his face. I found the topography of his face really, really um, intriguing and compelling. And every time I looked at it, every visit I made... As he was aging and and moving through the metamorphosis of Alzheimer's, he um, his face just became more and more mesmerizing, in many ways more and more beautiful. And it's one of the reasons that I um, decided to include a lot of close-ups in the film. Shot him close up. There was something about his face, um, the way he moved his eyes, the way he scrunched his nose. Everything was communication, you know, in many ways. But um, moving beyond that, he was an extremely erudite man, totally 
dedicated to the art of poetry, the power of the work of art, the lives of poets. Um, also, you know, very dedicated to teaching, even if it didn't mean at Brown, you know, continuing at Brown University, where he taught for 26 years, he founded the creative writing program there, brought in many poets um, and writers. What was your relationship with Edwin? My relationship with Edwin was uh, a kind of um, collage of different threads, a weave of different threads. He was my cousin, my first cousin once removed. He's my mother's first cousin, although my mother barely knows him. Uh, he also became my friend, and also became a kind of a mentor to me over the years. He's 36 years my senior, and um, somehow the fact that we straddled two, or depending on how you look at it, two and a half generations, gave, um, gave us a freedom um, to kind of forge a, a very unusual relationship. Uh, also, I was an artist in the family, and we bonded over that. That was actually probably the, uh, the glue that cemented all the other threads. And um, it's very interesting. When I was in high school, entering college, Edwin was a kind of rumor in my family. Uh, he had removed himself from the family circle, and people spoke of him, you know, <laughs> in some mythic terms somehow. But when I entered college and I started to... Um, undergo uh, the process of understanding that I was entering the arts in a serious way and, and uh, you know, that this is where my life was headed, I realized that I had a real live capital P poet in Providence, Rhode Island, um, who was a cousin. I mean, he was a real cousin <laughs> and uh, that I could contact. And so I did. And it was a very, very important encounter for both of us, for me, because, you know, I had a kindred spirit in the family and someone who I could talk with openly and honestly. And, um, you know, on some level, he was an older brother. Another level, he was a surrogate father. But he was my first cousin. But what I hadn't um, imagined or hadn't expected was that my contacting Edwin would be as, uh, shall we say, as profoundly important to him because here I was, a member of his family who had been basically estranged from, uh, reaching out to him. And it was a bridge back to all that history and those people and the stories and uh, his childhood. And, and so we bonded, you know, through all of that. So there was a, you had a long relationship with him before any dementia, any signs of Alzheimer's. Oh, appeared. for sure, for sure. In fact, this film, First Cousin Once Removed, is the culmination of decades of family kinship and artistic kinship and, as I mentioned, long walks and long talks and debates and, you know, long conversations, much of which was centered around Edwin's belief that art should get to the bottom of things, that it should touch people in their souls, you know, should, shouldn't be afraid to go there wherever there was. And, you know, that's one of the things I learned from him. Once upon a time, I was an interesting fellow. 
Now I don't read or write without a bed of jello. Uh -huh. Right, I'm Edmund Honig, and I've been around for 70 years, so I think, and have been a poet and writer. Born in Brooklyn, New York, September 3rd, 1919, Abraham Lincoln High School, 1935, City College of New York, University of Wisconsin-Madison, studied English, graduated Who's this? in B.A. Latin American Affairs, Spanish and Political Science, He's the man who you years, once were. World War, European Theater, University of Wisconsin, M.A. I'm not impressed. Did I mention getting a Guggenheim? Got a Guggenheim. <laughs> Year off, writing fiction, allegory, satire. Went to Harvard. Trying to be someone. Brown University, professor of English and comparative literature, director of the writing program. So the film was uh, shot over five years. Correct. And what was Edwin's state at the beginning of that? Um, talk to us a little bit about the negotiations that you may have had with him and uh, how lucid he was before he, before you began this project right. that ended up. And did you know that it was going to be a five-year? project. Well, when we began, it's funny because I was about to make a film about memory um, centered around a woman who lived in Los Angeles who had uh, what the neurologists refer to as superabundant um, yeah, super autobiographical memory. She basically remembered everything from her life. You give her a day, she'll tell you what she did. She might be able to tell you the weather, what the headlines were. And um, they spent five years analyzing her, studying her, working with her, and she was the real deal. It wasn't a trick, you know. And so I actually wanted to make a film about her. I, I had imagined that her brain was essentially a some sort of magical home movie machine. And I thought that was very cinematic, had cinematic potential and interested me a lot because memory has been something that I've been exploring one way or the other in all of my films. Anyway, it didn't work out with the woman for a variety of reasons, uh, think she got an agent or something. But um, I remember going to Providence to talk to Edwin about it. And uh, Edwin was telling me that he was beginning to lose his memory too. He was concerned. And I said, well, maybe next time I come, let me bring a camera. Let's talk about memory. Let's talk about your experience in this process of confronting the very issue of memory and he said, fine, you know. Now, at that time and in the early visits thereafter, Edwin was in a somewhat of a, um, a stage of um, memory loss that the neurologists referred to as um, confabulation. Um, if you ask them a question, like what day is today, they'll respond with a question. Uh, do you know what day it is? Or... Who needs to know the day? You know, it's the day before tomorrow. It's the day after yesterday or what have you. I, there's a deflection, you know, and it's to throw people off. It's an, a way of avoidance. And, and the, the, you know, different people will be more, more or less uh, clever in their confabulatory uh, devices. Um, but it's something that the neurologists know how to look for and know how to see through and decode. But uh, Edwin was a little bit like that. You know, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Uh, I, I was saying, well, how, what tricks do you have for, I might say to him, what tricks lately do you have to try to remember things? Why would I need any tricks? There's nothing wrong with my memory, you know. So um, anyway, we had this conversation, and uh, over the course of my visits, particularly, you know, for the first 
year and a half or two, you know, we went over, you know, I was here last time, I'm coming again, this is what we're doing, and I'm going to be cutting these visits into some kind of film, though I had no idea at the time what it was going to be like, um, or how many visits it was going to be, or how long it was going to take. In fact, if, to be honest with you, I thought Edwin was going to, Edwin died at 91, I thought he was going to, like his father before him, live till 95 or 96. And I was wondering just how long the film project might actually go. <laughs> and, well, so one of the critiques that you can imagine immediately, and you you, you confront it right away, uh, or very early in the film, um, you, you allow her sister to, to, to express it right away, um, that he's in his last years, that he's compromised, and that it makes her sad to see him in this state, and that your filming of him would be somehow a violation of his dignity. Um, can you describe your approach to his dignity in, in the film? Sure. Well, first of all, I included that because it is, it is an important issue that's confronted when you attempt a film like this. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, I had a very special relationship with Edwin, and so um, the strength and the foundation of our relationship not only allowed me to, to go there, you know, but the very fact that Edwin was a poet, you know, poets are special citizens in our society, in our culture. They're the ones we look to, to make the, you know, invisible visible. They're the ones that we look to when we, to put words to experiences that we don't understand. And, and Edwin had written countless poems that somehow presaged the very condition that he was experiencing. You know, he was interested in human frailty and the power, the profound power of memory. And he wrote poems about every, you know, whether it was the death of his brother San Stanley or the death of his wife, his first wife Charlotte, or his estrangement from his children and his his wife uh, Margot, second wife Margot. So Edwin was someone who lived, you know, a life of literary daring. And there's no doubt in my mind, I, I never, you know, it's funny, I experience your question as a, as an issue, but it never was a conflict for me. I'd like to think that the film is, is filled with not only my respect for Edwin and my love for him, but the idea that um, I'm using his metamorphosis through memory loss as a, um, a mirror, you know, for people to, to see in, in a kind of raw way, but I like to think in a loving way about just how memory functions in terms of how we form identity and how, you know, we translate the past into the present and we take those translations of the past into the present and somehow mysteriously and magically formulate them into a hope for, an imagined for, a plan for um, future, you know, which Edwin's no longer capable of doing. And part of the power of, of the film is Edwin's ability to, well, his lucidity, really, even in, in his most dark moments, he seems to somehow be able to tap into some resource of, of uh, incredible things that he says over and over. And he comes across as this very, sometimes he comes across as a very sweet, funny, poetic person. And then slowly as the film goes on, we begin to realize that there's another several more layers to his personality and they aren't quite all as sweet and funny as they appeared on the surface and it starts to raise the question a bit of who the real Edwin Honig is 
and by association, the real anybody is in many ways. And if this maybe enfeebled version of him isn't maybe an improvement on what he was before. <laughs> well, I, I can't say that. I mean, listen, uh, as Edwin says about Alzheimer's, um, so much is given is a, at the end, near the end. He says so much is, oh, he says so much is gained and so much is lost. You know, but talk about the the more difficult parts of his personality. Yeah, well, listen, he was he was very critical. You know, to know him was to know that he was critical. Uh, you know, my film is a portrait of a complicated man who experienced tragedy at a very young age. You might say that the the loss of his brother at age five, for which he was blamed by both his mother and his father and for which he experienced uh, uh, the wrath of blame on many, many different levels, both uh, (laughs) psychological and material, um, made a deep impression on him, and you might even say created the poet early. And um, I was not going to be shy about Edwin's flaws or Edwin's foibles. I was going to embrace them, show that they were part of who he is. I'd like to think I created a a true and honest portrait of him. And um, I, I want to say one more thing about Edwin's, um, about the film that I think is important to mention. It. Um, I thought when I started the film that I was making a portrait of um, Edwin. And through that, I was making a film about memory. I mean, people ask, used to ask me, what are you doing? Well, I'm making a film about memory, a, a portrait of my cousin, and he's losing his memory. But back to Edwin's life, in which he had what he called his three griefs, the death of his brother, Stanley, the loss of his first wife, Charlotte, and then his estrangement from his wife and two children. Um, what, hadn't, uh, fully, what I hadn't fully absorbed when I began the project was that I was making a film about someone who also had a lot that he needed to forget. You know, and that changes things. So, so here we are in a position where we have uh, his sons who are who who feel, and I, I believe rightfully so, uh, wounded by their experience with their father and the divorce of their parents and their childhood, and um, and one might say that some kind of um, intrinsic unconscious memory of Edwin's own childhood got recapitulated if you will, reenacted in relation to his own children. But the bottom line is that um, by including the testimony of his children, somehow the film takes on another narrative dimension, and that is what do people who still have the memory of that pain do when the person they blame, the person that they've been struggling with can no longer remember I, I say this euphemistically committing the crime can no longer remember the hurt that he's inflicted and there's something blissful in that you might even say there's something merciful in that because it's if, if they choose to embrace it as such it's an opportunity to let it go because if he can't remember that he did it then he can't apologize and so in that condition, um, what do you do with that anger? 
what do you do with that pain? It 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 seemed like there's an opportunity in the, in the that I that the film creates an opportunity in real life, you know, um, for them to I don't want to say forgive him, but to to um, understand that uh, that there's transcendent power in the act of forgetting. And that that's why underneath this film it seems to me you'll tell me if I'm taking it too far but underneath it there's this rumbling of a very Jewish question uh, this is what you just spoke about it sounds to me like the Holocaust <laughs> these are uh, this is this is act of forgiving this uh, the, the the amount of energy that Jews spend trying to remember uh, how important it is for them to not forget um, is this a Jewish film in that way? Um, sure. I think the film is imbued with many, many levels of Jewishness. Um, you know, it, it, just the very relationship here. I mean, you mentioned the Holocaust, but just the very synergistic relationship, almost ineffable relationship between the act of forgiving and the act of forgetting. Forgiving and forgetting. You know, this film makes that, blurs those lines, you know, and makes them, um, I'd, I'd like to think it changes the way we look at them, you know. But uh, is the film Jewish? Edwin, um, it's very funny, you take away language from a wordsmith, and Ed, what does Edwin default to? And he, this happened many, many a day for, for quite a while. Old Yiddish songs, you know, that's what came out of his mouth. Um, on another level, though it's not so Jewish, but it has to do with religion, I, I tried to engage Edwin in questions of God and religion once in a while. But what I learned uh, um, from Edwin is that even though he lost his... And he was a secular Jew. I mean, he wasn't, you know, although his father was a kind of uh, weekend cantor. He, wasn't, he didn't have a pulpit, per se. But while he lost the lexicon of Judaism, he didn't lose, I learned, I discovered, he didn't lose the need still to somehow explain the world, you know, to have a worldview about something. And to me, this is one of the most profound things he taught me because he sat in the chair every day. I mean, if I, my film had a subtitle, it would be, you know, First Cousin Once Removed, The Man Who Lived in a Chair. And sitting in that chair, he looked out the window every day. You know, not only the days when I was visiting him, all the other days, day after day after day in the chair. And what did he see out of the chair? He saw the trees and the branches and the leaves. He essentially watched nature unfold. And there's a section in the film in which he describes that that's, he needed something to believe in. And what does he believe in? The changing of the leaves. You know, they go away, but they always come back. They're still, but they're moving. They taught him something. That was his hold on life. He needed still to have a framework for, under, for, for holding on to time, to change, to transformation. And um, he says, he said at one point, um, I know there's a past and that I lived in it and that I gave it up to live only, to live in, the only in the present. present. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I found Edwin at a at the threshold, at the cusp 
as he was just about entering this netherworld. But he was still had he still had strength, he still had lots of lucidity, and he was still a poet, you know? And I, I always approached him as a poet, and he always gave back to me. Our conversations always had poetic resonance. I, I found the film to be beautiful and terrifying also, in part because I'm just like you. My grandfather, both of my grandfathers, my great-grandfather probably had dementia. My, my grandfathers, both of my nobles, uh, had Alzheimer's, so the males all do, and I'm just like you say in the film, you seem to be in line for it next, and any time I can't remember a word, I start thinking that I have Alzheimer's <laughs> <laughs> or that I'm going to be preparing for it. In fact, you have a beautiful exchange with Edwin at one point where you ask him for advice uh, on what to do, and he says, prepare yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you imagine yourself uh, in this role at some point? Are you making a film about yourself in some way? Well, of course, uh, you know, that's a subtext for for the, this kind of project and uh, on many levels. And, um, you know, I, I had made the film about my father uh, in 1996, Nobody's Business. And at one point in the film, I asked my father how he would like to be remembered. Or does it matter to him how he's remembered? And he responds by saying, I'd like to be remembered the way we're talking now as a man who has all his marbles. And I, you know, I sort of never really fully uh, embraced the impact of, of those words, or why, he'd even, why he would even say that. You know? And perhaps he was thinking about his father, who he knew had lost his marbles, so to speak. And um, so I was tempted when my father was in a senior citizen's residence and then finally a nursing home at the end of his days to document, you know, the fact that he didn't remember my name and, and uh, basically couldn't take care of himself. And, but I didn't. I resisted. I felt I'd made a film about him, and that was the memory I wanted to have of him. him you know. But to answer your question more directly, um, I think the fear of losing one's memory is... Uh, it's big stuff and uh, in a way it doesn't get more profound you know so um, I worry about it I think about it I try to avoid it um, they say that one of the best things you can do is to keep your mind active it's the crossword puzzle therapy I don't do crossword puzzles I make films you know and there are rather elaborate crossword puzzles for me so, Alan Billiner, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Alan Berliner's latest film, First Cousin Once Removed, airs on HBO this coming Monday, September 23rd. I highly recommend it. Fox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Matthew Fishbane. Next week, we have a fantastic interview with Israel's preeminent novelist, Amos Oz. Don't miss it. 